Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and it's with great pleasure that today my guest is Nadim Bawalsa. Nadim is a historian of modern Palestine, and he worked his PhD at New York University. But more importantly, he just wrote a book uh, which I would say is going to change our perception of Palestine in a way that uh, his idea of looking at transnational Palestine, which is the title of the work, allows us to get a sense of Palestinian communities abroad. And this is the reason why I really wanted to uh, set up an interview with Nadim. So his book, Transnational Palestine, is a book about migration and the right of return before 1948. Because in fact, as Palestinian communities began to move away from late Ottoman Palestine and they settled down mostly in Latin America, they also tried to retain their citizenship after the British took over and established the mandate. But more importantly, in 1925, enabled a law which essentially took away their right of citizenship. And ever since, all of these communities, coming from Nablus, Bethlehem, Bejala, and indeed Jerusalem, felt more isolated disconnected, at least from a superficial level, but indeed they kept their connections with the land of Palestine. And while the language may have shifted from Arabic to Spanish, still the ties between Palestinians in Latin America and Palestine are stronger than ever. I can certainly not omit the fact that Nadim is al-Shabaka's that is the Palestinian Policy Network uh, with a great website and a very good number of podcasts. Um, and he's the commissioning editor of the website, but he's also a freelance uh, journalist for Jerusalem Story. Before we're going to talk about uh, your work and your book, Nadim, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you for having me. Nadim, the first question I want to ask is about really yourself. And so can you tell us something about your background and the origins of uh, of the book, Transnational Palestine? Absolutely. 
so uh, I, uh, I identify as Palestinian, Palestinian-Jordanian. Uh, I was born in, in Jordan to uh, Palestinian parents. Uh, the interesting thing is, is the, that while my father, my father's family traces their roots back to Karak on the east bank of the Jordan River, um, my grandfather did the odd thing in the early 40s of uh, moving to Bethlehem from Karak. Um, he'd been working with the, the, the Arab army under the uh, Globasha's regime in Jordan. And he was assigned um, to work in, in, in a Bethlehem outpost. So we, he moved there and raised my father and his seven siblings in, in Bejala, just uh, beside Ramallah, uh, excuse me, Bethlehem. And uh, so my father has always identified as Palestinian culturally, even though our last name comes from this side of, of, of the river. When I say this side, I am currently in Jordan. So, um, so but my mom's family is sort of squarely uh, within the sort of the, the Jerusalem Ramallah intellectual elite. So, uh, you know, Palestine has always been part of, of the fabric of our household, whether my mom and dad, or my grandmother, who is a big part of my upbringing, um, who's from the Nasser family, uh, my mom's family, the Said family. So, uh, you know, sort of very aristocratic, uh, English-educated Palestinians um, who suffered tremendously during 48 and then 67 and so on. So it was very much part of my upbringing in, in, in many ways. Um, uh, as for the origins of the book, um, this was part of a dissertation project that I started in 2011. Uh, I had just started my PhD at NYU in 2010, and a year later I went to the State Archives in Jerusalem to uh, uh, sort of do preliminary dissertation research to see what I could come up with. The, the initial goal or, or hope was to find uh, my, my, my focus during the master's and the first uh, year of, of, of PhD research was more autobiographical sources. So looking at diaries and journals and letters and memoirs and so on from Palestinian intellectuals in the early 20th century, like Khalil Sekakini and so on. So I wanted to go uh, to Jerusalem to try to piece together a more, uh, um, a more robust intellectual history that wasn't necessarily religious and wasn't necessarily about nationalism. So sort of what were Palestinians thinking and saying outside of, um, you know, the sort of the nationalist circles. And it uh, struck me that autobiographical sources would be the place to, to find that information. Um, so I went to the state archives and I, and I found a few, you know, sort of letters and, and so on, but they really weren't saying much. And after a few weeks in the archives, and I was quite, quite frustrated at that point because my, my research was coming to an end, um, a friend uh, of mine who was in the PhD program with me, Frederick Mayton, uh, who's currently at the University of New Hampshire, uh, was also a professor of, of a historian of, of, of Palestine. Uh, he, he was also with me at the archive, and he came up to me one, one afternoon and said, Nadim, could you take a look at this document? I, I think I understand it, but it's written in Arab, handwritten in Arabic, but I think it says 1927 at the top. And uh, this definitely says Centro Social Palestino de Monterrey, Mexico. Uh, so the Palestinian uh, social uh, center of Monterrey, Mexico, 1927. So it struck us both that what is this document? Why are there Palestinians in Mexico in the 20s? And why, are, why did they form a center? And they had letterhead printed in Arabic and Spanish. Um, and what was this document about? So... Uh, you know, it's not easy to read handwritten Arabic from, you know, 100 years ago, but I managed to decipher that uh, 
it was in fact a uh, a petition written to the uh, to the British government of Palestine uh, in Arabic. Uh, it was demanding redress for uh, British government having denied applications of several Palestinian migrants in Mexico denied their applications for Palestinian citizenship uh, a few months prior to that petition. So I thought that was very interesting. And I thought, well, this is clearly a topic that's never been written about, uh, you know, in my years of graduate work, I'd never heard of um, Palestinian activists in Mexico in the 20s trying to go back to Palestine as Palestinian citizens. Um, so I, I, the box where my friend Frederick found that document, uh, there were several more similar documents written in Arabic, English, uh, uh, Spanish, and even French. Uh, from Palestinians all over the Americas, including Cuba, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Chile, um, Honduras, uh, of course, the United States, and the bigger hubs in South America, Argentina, Brazil, and uh, Chile. So all these Palestinians, these sort of networks of Palestinian activists were engaging in this transnational uh, sort of political activism uh, demanding uh, their rights to Palestinian citizenship from British authorities, British mandate authorities in the 20s. So this is how the book came to be a project. Uh, sorry, sorry, the project, uh, or the top, this is how I found the topic, and this is how I moved away from that sort of intellectual history to something I thought was much more original, much more uh, new. So in subsequent years, I went to England and then to the British Archives in London and then to uh, the Biblioteca Nacional in, in Santiago in Chile, which had uh, the largest number of sources related to this period, um, the late 20s and 30s. And I managed to piece together uh, what's really a story of a struggle to return that started in the 1920s and not 1948. Before I move to the next question, I just want to say that your book actually struck a particular chord with myself and my work. Um, a long time before you actually started your work, when I was, uh, you know, looking for material related to the Navy Musa riots of 1920, I remember bumping into boxes of this uh, Comité de Hijos de Palestina from Mexico and other parts of Latin America petitioning and complaining about the events. And in fairness, I didn't know exactly what to make of all of those documents. I thought they were like... Uh, just individuals who lived abroad and, uh, you know, cared about their land. But uh, other than that, I closed the boxes. And it was a pleasure to actually to understand and read your material and, and see that there's an entire world behind those petition and those letters. And, uh, uh, you know, for me, it was like uh, a sort of a lesson learned that sometimes it's worth following through instead of just dismissing because I feel like, who are these Palestinians writing in Spanish, right? And must be some, you know, just a, a few individuals. But actually, it turns out there were a lot more. Let me ask something about uh, the beginning and the end of your book. So both the starts and the ends really are about personal stories. And I was wondering if you can give us a taste of them and also how do these stories relate to your narrative? So as, as I mentioned, you know, in the first question, uh, you know, in terms of my, my own mode of identification, let's say, um, you know, I've, I've never lived in, in Palestine, uh, yet I've never not def identified as Palestinian. And this is really sort of the, the crux of the book is that you, uh, you might be a stateless national for eternity, but you will always somehow feel 
connected to this history, whatever it is, wherever it is. And so, well, we know exactly where it is. It's, it's historic geographic Palestine, but um, our inability to go there and, and lay claims to it, whether it's to territory or property or a, a, a right to reside and stay um, is very much connected to, to why we continue to identify as Palestinians. This is what I realized from, from, from all these years of research. Um, and, you know, for most historians, how many of us get to connect with the source material so personally, you know, so this, um, it struck me as important to connect to this material personally and to explain to the readers why this topic was so important for me personally. Um, and so, so to, to, to realize that there were Palestinians across the Americas a hundred years ago who, like myself, um, are barred from return, but feel strongly connected to this, this, this land and this mode of identification was, was something very moving uh, for me. So I decided to, to introduce that, to introduce the book that way with, with the prologue. Um, you know, I get into my childhood and what it means to have grown up in Jordan, uh, mostly in Jordan, but we, we moved quite a bit, uh, identifying as Palestinian, but carrying a Jordanian passport, living in a country uh, that, uh, you know, while does recognize Palestine, Palestine, and of course we're allowed to speak about it and so on, we, we're, we don't really question the narrative of Jordan and Palestine, how, how they came to be separate being entities when they never should have been, so to speak. Um, and the fact that my last name is from this side of the river, the East Bank, meaning that makes me Jordanian and not Palestinian. So all these things uh, sort of influenced the way I, I, I decided to frame this book and, and, and structure it from start to finish. Um, the, uh, you know, the sort of trajectory of, of, of cementing this connection to an, a mode of identification that is unequivocally Palestinian in spite of uh, all forces around you about, around us that tell us otherwise that uh, no you are not you are Jordanian or no you're not you're an American citizen or you're Chilean or so on so uh, I started the book with with that sort of anecdote and then ended it with something that actually happened it wasn't apocryphal but um, it was one of the last times I'd gone to Jerusalem to attend an uncle's funeral in Beit Hanina and uh, I, I enter uh, Israel on my U.S. passport, which I acquired as a teenager through my American stepfather. So that's how I go, which is another element of, you know, I can go, I can go to Palestine as a U.S. tourist on a three-month visa. I'm not recognized as someone returning, someone from there. So that was also another level of sort of <laughs> existential um, angst, let's say, whenever I go, I go as a U.S. citizen. But anyway... Um, I was sitting at, at this funeral and the woman came up to me uh, to say, you look very familiar. Are you Yusuf Bawals' son? And I said, yes, I am. She said, I was his neighbor growing up in Bejala and I, and I knew it had to be you and so on. So anyway, I get to talking to this woman and uh, she asks what I'm doing. And I mean, this is in a funeral and it's supposed to be somber and so on. And I tell her about my research and, and so on. Um, and that I had just been to Chile and, and she said, oh, my brother lives there, but I haven't been. And, it's too far. It's so on. She says, uh, you know, she says, but wow, there's there's really that many Bajali, so residents of Bejala and Talahme is residents of Betlahem and Sawahre, you know, residents of Betzahur that live in Chile. And I was telling her just how sort of palpable the Palestinianness of these communities was in Chile. And there was this something really beautiful that happened in this very somber setting. Uh, and I thought, 
you know, it's what a nice way to end the book that, yes, this is a sad story. And yes, we continue to live with with tremendous sadness and, and loss when it comes to Palestine, but also when we find each other wherever it is, whether, you know, in Palestine or the Andes, uh, like I discovered through my research, there is this, you know, intangible warmth that uh, that brings us uh, great joy, I would say, and sort of and relief that, hey, at least we're not you know, lost forever just because we don't have a state, or at least we, um, we still have ways to connect with one each other, with one, with with one another, and establish these uh, transnational connections. There's also something nice about having a book that went all over the globe. You know, sort of, yes, Jerusalem and Palestine in the in in the 1910s and teens when Palestinians were leaving, and then, uh, you know, sort of the seat of the British Empire in England and what was happening there, and then all the way to Mexico and so on, and then to have the book end by coming back to to Palestine. Um, was also somehow a nice way to, to frame and close the book, I thought. And and I was worried, to be honest, to, to start an academic text with per, and to start and end an academic text with personal reflections. And I thought the publishers wouldn't go with it. But in fact, they all said, well, this is really fresh and different. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's take a risk and see what happens. <laughs> I think the publisher were absolutely right in uh, suggesting that this was a, a refreshing starting and ending with personal story. But now let's go back to the book. And, you know, transnational Palestine is uh, about Palestinian immigration to Latin America. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who these migrants were and more importantly, why did they choose uh, Latin America? Of course. Uh, so this is how I start the book. Um, like most books on migration and diaspora studies, it's important to situate uh, migrants' narratives within the, sort of the larger political, socioeconomic context. Uh, so several historians have written about the out-migration of, of Ottoman Arabs or Ottoman Arabic-speaking Arabic Ottomans or Arabic-speaking Ottoman Syrians or however you would uh, classify them. So. Um, what we really need to, to, to stress is that the history of Palestinian migration from Palestine to the Americas or westward was never disconnected from that of the Lebanese, the Syrians, um, anyone else from the eastern Mediterranean when it was undivided greater Syria. Uh, so starting in around 18, in the 1860s, uh, you know, once the, the, the first boats full of Middle Eastern migrants started uh, setting off westward, Palestinians were always part of these migrations, but their numbers were always uh, less significant than those of the Lebanese and Syrians. And this is for different reasons, but mostly because the southern province of Syria was, was uh, as we know, ge geographic Palestine was sort of less uh, uh, economically uh, significant as, as the ports of Beirut or, or, or the, the, the bigger cities like Damascus and Aleppo. But Palestinians were nonetheless always part of, of these uh, greater waves of migration. It's just about locating them in the historical record and trying to parse out when are they Syrians as greater Syria as, as residents of greater Syria and when do they become? How do we know that they're Palestinian um, in in this historical narrative? So that was that was the big part of the book. But um, going back to the reasons for migration, uh, as with migrants from the entire region, this is this is mostly economic and political. So um, you know, towards the end of, of Ottoman rule in the region. So starting, you know, 1870s, 1880s until uh, 1920 or so, 1914 with the start of the World War. 
um, you know, the Ottoman Empire was 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 struggling with with economically and sort of keeping up with with the West. This had, <coughs> excuse me, this had uh, serious consequences for residents of the of the empire uh, who were stretched thin um, uh, economically. So famine, droughts, uh, you know, sort of political unrest, social unrest, inter, uh, inter you know, sectarian strife was leading uh, to out migration mostly of Christians of middle, lower socioeconomic classes. Um, the, so as this out-migration was taking place, uh, the question of where to go was also an important, an important one. So while the Lebanese and Syrians had sort of formed the first networks and the first uh, settlement hubs in the Americas, by the time Palestinians started to, to migrate as well, they were connecting with these communities upon arrival, let's say in Veracruz in Mexico or Buenos Aires or Rio de Janeiro or uh, Santiago. They were connecting with these other Arabic speaking migrants, like Lebanese and Syrians and so on, receiving credit lines from them and then venturing into, you know, the American Wild West or in, into the into the interior of the continents. Uh, selling essentially Holy Land items like uh, you know olive wood crucifixes and mother of pearl and uh, olive oil and so on. Uh, where they went is really a function of how saturated those markets had already been by others by other Arabic speaking migrants. Uh, so the larger hubs like Santiago and and uh, well let's say Sao Paulo or uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Mexico City were were seen as more uh, competitive. And so it, it wouldn't have made sense, or nor would it have been wise for a Palestinian who considered themselves, um, well, it was mostly men at this, or in this early stage. So a Palestinian who would have, migrant who would have considered himself to be also Syrian, to go and compete with his neighbor who was from Damascus or Beirut and so on, uh, which would harm both of them. So uh, Cecilia Beza, who's a political scientist and, and has done some historical research on this period, uh, calls this suicidal concurrence, uh, the idea of uh, settling where the market had been saturated by by fellow compatriots who were selling similar goods and so on, would be harmful to both. So what they did was settle these hinterlands, these areas that hadn't been tapped yet, these uh, parts of the Chilean Andes that no one thought uh, would be uh, marketable. So, but for these Palestinian communities who were largely from Bejala, Beit Lahayim, Bethlehem, and, and Beit Sahur, uh, these migrants arrived um, harrowingly across the Andes from the, from the Argentinian side, trekked through the Andes up on mules, arrived on the other side and found a land that looked tremendously similar to, to Palestine, the hills, the, the dry air, um, the, 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 the very temperate climate, very similar to Palestine's. I, and I found this, this, this in the sources as well. Uh, Palestinians sort of uh, speaking to each other about how attractive Chile is uh, for Palestinians specifically how, because of how much it resembles the southern Syrian uh, coastal climate. Um, so this is why they chose these sort of more or less uh, developed parts of the Americas. Uh, both for geographic and topographic and climactic similarity, and also because of uh, economic uh, reasons. Uh, as for northern Mexico, that was another uh, reason why they chose uh, the, those the, sort of the northern Mexican belt of settlements from uh, 
Monterrey, Saltillo, uh, uh, where else? Um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the names. But anyway, across the northern <laughs> corridor, northern dry desert corridor of Mexico, proximity to the U.S. border was very important for these early migrants as well. There was a, a sense that if they entered at Mexico, which was easier to enter than the United States at New York, if they entered at Veracruz, they would get a credit line from other Arabic-speaking migrants, enter the the, the Mexican continent by foot, pedal, sell goods, and then hopefully get to cross into the United States through El Paso. And many did, but of course, those who didn't chose to stay and they became quite affluent uh, merchants. Um, and of course, the northern uh, sort of terrain of Mexico is the one that would be most similar to that of, of the region, having, you know, having a dry climate, uh, uh, a desert uh with 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 highlands as well so uh this is the story of of the sort of the migration patterns of settlement and and the reasons for 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 leaving the other reason for leaving just to go back to one of the other push factors that drove so many to leave was the ottoman uh conscription of non-muslims into the ottoman army on the on the eve of the first world war so this is why we see such a huge number of, of christians from these provinces of greater syria migrating westward uh, fleeing Ottoman conscription. Let me pick up from what you were just talking about, uh, these migrants. So here you have uh, Jerusalemites, uh, migrants from Bejala, Bethlehem, and other villages and towns of Palestine. How did these migrants settle down in their new homes? And also, can you tell us a little bit more about how they experienced the changes that were occurring in Palestine from, let's say, the outbreak of World War I? but also then to the, uh, the end of the war, the arrival of the British, the French, which eventually introduced new borders, legal systems, and essentially redesigned uh, the regions uh, that belong to the Ottoman Empire into new nation states. So I think I answered the, the first question a little bit earlier, but I'll, I'll give a little bit more detail about using you know, the newspapers that I found. So in terms of how these migrants settled in their new homes, for, for the most part, most of them came quite poor or quite, um, you know, with, with little to their names. So what they did was either um, stay with relatives or, or, or friends they would meet on, on the boats or, or middlemen they would meet at the ports who would connect them with, with um, other Middle Eastern migrant communities across the continent. So either they would stay for a period of time with them, get established, get on their feet, and then uh, rent a space from which to sell goods and to live. So this is something that the Chilean authorities and Chilean shop owners who were not Middle Eastern, so let's say non-Middle Eastern Chilean merchants, would complain about frequently saying that these Turcos, these, you know, so most all migrants from um, Middle East were referred to pejoratively as Turcos because they carried Ottoman travel documents. Um, so it was used as, as a slur against them by, by, by non-Middle non Eastern migrants. They would complain to Chilean authorities that these, these Turcos uh, are staying open really late and they are selling, they're staying open on the weekends which is very uh, improper given that Sunday is the day uh, of the Lord, for example, uh, or uh, that it's improper and uh, inconsiderate to stay open late because you encourage, because to be, it has a competitive hostile um, uh, approach to, to, to 
to being neighbors. So if you st- keep your shop open late, whereas your neighbor shuts at sundown, you're seen as as trying to uh, uh, to gain the upper hand. So amongst one another, these Palestinians and these m- migrant communities would uh, would sort of reprimand each other in the newspapers, saying, you know, I know you live in the back of the shop and I know you can stay open all night, but for God's sake, please stop. You can't do this anymore. You're embarrassing us. The authorities are going to shut you down. Uh, we're going to be considered low-class migrants and we want to be considered higher-class migrants. We want to give them reason to keep us here. So let's respect their traditions. Let's close on Sundays. Let's close early and so on. So you get the sense for how they lived, which is in many ways how Palestinians in Palestine lived, uh, you know, sort of merchants and um, uh, carpenters and, 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 and so on. Uh, so they, they lived in the backs of their shops. Uh, and before long, they had, you know, amassed enough wealth to open bigger shops and then factories. And, and then they sort of tapped into these, uh, uh, well, actually, they quite literally dominated these larger uh, economic fields, especially in Chile, industry, banking, manufacturing. Uh, so to this day, uh, Palestinians uh, form the, the, some of the wealthiest members of, of Chile's um, sort of elites, um, elite society. Uh, but yeah, they all had very, very humble uh, beginnings uh, in, terms of, in terms of their homes. Um, in terms of the, the other big question, uh, which is really the book, is, is what happens after World War I. Um, and to put it simply, Britain had very different plans for its mandate in Palestine, as we know, um, than it did for its mandate in Iraq or than the French had in mind for Syria and Lebanon. So what we see that's very that's radically different happening, um, what we see happening for Palestinians versus uh, their Lebanese or Syrian migrant uh, neighbors is that these Palestinians were not allowed to lay any claim to inheritance, to residency, to, to property um, back in Palestine. Whereas French and Syrian migrants, by the time the French mandate was installed in Lebanon and Syria, were uh, incur- were excited to have these sort of westernized, wealthier uh, residents, uh, would-be residents of Lebanon and Syria, acquire French uh, citizenship so that they can then be encouraged to come back and invest in the country, which would, of course, uh, be beneficial to the French mandate. So it became quite clear that, you know, in terms of, what kind of citizen subject the British and the French wanted for their mandates uh, was, well, they both wanted the same thing. They both wanted an ideal citizen subject. And for Britain, they had that citizen subject uh, set. uh, And that citizen subject was the Jewish immigrant, not the one of the 40,000 or so Palestinian migrants um, who lived across the Americas. Uh, so what this did was, including the partition of, of greater Syria into different territories, what this did was sort of uh, encourage separation separation or division in identification among these, these, com- these communities in the diaspora. So they couldn't simply refer to themselves as, as Syrians anymore, or Arabs. You had to specify uh, in this time period, this very volatile uh, shifting time period in the 20s, uh, whether you were from 
what is now Palestine, Lebanon, or Syria. Uh, and what's interesting here is also that you see British officials, when denying Palestinian uh, immigrants uh, petition or applications for citizenship, saying, um, well, this person can only present Ottoman travel documents. They cannot present a birth certificate saying they were born in Palestine. It just The birth certificate just says, uh, you know, Ottoman Syria. So how do we know where they were born, for example? So th they have no claim to, uh, to, to being Palestinian, even if they say they're from Jerusalem or Bethlehem or so on. So it became really about pinpointing in the naming where you were from in order to prove that. But of course, this was only made this hard for, for Palestinians. Uh, Lebanese and Syrians had much less difficulty. And uh, Stacey Ferentold wrote about this in, in, in her book about the same time period. Uh, Syrians, of course, were seen as more... Uh, troublemakers, let's say, nationalists in Lebanese. So they had a bit of a harder vetting process to get uh, French-Syrian citizenship over the, versus the Lebanese. But it was really the, um, the Palestinians who had the hardest time uh, securing a, a legal claim to Palestine during this period. I want to pick up on this one, um, even though I really wanted to ask you something about... Uh, um, letters and petition, but since you start talking about uh, the uh, uh, Palestinian Citizenship Ordinance of 1925 and the question uh, that started earlier in 1923 with the Treaty of Lausanne, which essentially uh, ended uh, World War I and so Ottoman citizenship ceased to exist. Uh, I'm curious about something because in the book you make an argument saying that essentially 1925 is... Uh, a precursor of 1948 in terms of diaspora and dispossession. And so I was wondering if you can, if you can elaborate a little bit more on, on this idea. So what this book argues is that the British mandate and British authorities with the tacit support and approval of the League of Nations were able to uh, permanently exclude or permanently exile Palestinian migrants from Palestine through this citizenship ordinance. Uh, so what the Palestinian Citizenship Ordinance, a 1925 ordinance, does is, is give away for uh, would-be subjects of the British mandate uh, a, a, a way to, to become part legally part of, of this mandate. Uh, who qualifies for it, even if the Treaty of Lausanne says that any migrant or any person born on this land but residing abroad has a right to it, there is still a stipulation in the Treaty of Lausanne that it's subject to the consent of the government operating on that land. Uh, so giving the British crown, not the League of Nations, even though the League of Nations is, is, uh, should be administering the mandates, giving the, uh, the, the king, the king of England, uh, of the United Kingdom at the time, uh, absolute authority, absolute uh, final say on who does and does not get approved for, for the citizenship. Uh, this in many ways mirrors what happens in, in 48. In, in some senses, uh, you know, in the Israeli uh, right of return, the law of return and the subsequent nationality laws uh, promulgated over the last 70 something years. Uh, what the Israelis do upon creating the 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 citizenship laws, the nationality laws in 1915, 1952, they uh, they reset citizenship, uh, essentially making obsolete any documents prior to uh, 
the establishment of the state of Israel. So had any Palestinians who were exiled in 48 held Palestinian, British Palestinian passports, those were no longer recognized under the new state. Uh, this is very similar to what the British did. So the British, even if the Palestinian who had left Palestine as an Ottoman citizen and had that travel document, even if they could present that to the British consulate in Santiago or in Monterrey or in Mexico City and say, here's evidence that I am from that land, that I am protected, my nationality is protected under the Treaty of Lausanne, that government or that consulate, had, there was no press, there was no uh, there's no way to ensure that that government or that you know consular officer would need to approve the application, even though the law said that every person had the right. Similarly, as we all know, we all have a right to return uh, as as exiled Palestinians. But what does that mean? In the or what what power weight does that have in the face of a, of a governing body, uh, a regime that doesn't want to recognize your right of return or that has final say? In, uh, and who does and doesn't get to be to belong to this land, uh, which really throws a wrench in, in international law and what value does international law have against regimes of power that uh, can wield power um, however they choose, irrespective of, of stipulations and different treaties. Um, you know, whether, whether it's UN resolutions protecting the rights of refugees, in refugee camps across the region, whether it's the Treaty of Lausanne, whether it's the, uh, the League of Nations itself, the text of the League of Nations, um, what the covenant of the League of Nations, excuse me, what exactly is there in international law to ensure that certain regimes of power will abide by it? And, um, and this is really why I find 1925 so interesting, because there is precedent for exiling and keeping in exile tens of thousands of Palestinians uh, by the time 1948 uh, comes around and, and the Zionists, uh, you know, establish the state that they have. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let me go back to um, what I wanted to ask you about, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a major topic discussed in your book, which is uh, uh, petitions and committees. And so I was wondering how these Palestinian migrants, you know, form committees and send letters and petitions to uh, most European authorities. Can you tell us something about the process, uh, how these committees were formed, petitions written, and who are the people involved? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I, I, did, I wasn't able to find much information on, on how these organizations or these cultural clubs and these committees came to be, uh, but, I, I, but all formed in the 20s. That's an important uh, fact, meaning upon the creation, upon the ratification of, of mandates by the League of Nations in 1920, 1921, um, we see a, a, a flurry of, of activity in the Mahjar, in the diaspora, of all these different committees popping up with the, uh, with the clear intention of remaining connected to what's happening in the homeland, saying, meaning... Um, if, for example, there were uh, conflicting interests between Druze and, and Maronite communities uh, in Lebanon about the best course of action following the demise of, of the Ottomans, Maronites and Druze communities in Michigan wanted in on this discussion. So they would form, you know, the Druze, and, um, this is an example and, and possibly incorrect, but there, there was a proliferation or a mirroring of, of nationalist mobilization and let's say political activism from the homeland in, in the Mahjar, in the diaspora. So uh, if there were, like, for example, um, and it's bi-directional. So if in the Mahjar they're doing, they, they are creating committees and, and organizations to protect the rights of, of Palestinian communities, they're also forming these, these organizations and these groups in Palestine. Certainly not not across the board, but uh, the more significant ones, yes. So uh, what we see occurring in the early 20s across in Mexico and Chile, especially is the formation of these Palestinian uh, committees, these Comité, uh, Comité Hijos de Palestina, uh, Centro Social Palestino, Club Sirio-Palestino, uh, Club uh, or um, Syrian-Palestinian Youth Club, which was, which was a, a strong, a very important one in, in, in Santiago. 1922, 1924, the Club Deportivo Palestino was formed in 1920, the famous football club uh, in Chile today. Uh, so these groups popping up in response to uh, Balfour Declaration, essentially, Britain's clear plan to hand over Palestine to the Zionists. Uh, in response, these, these groups forming in defense of, of Palestine. What's interesting is that we see a lot of Syrio-Palestino meaning that we know Syria to have, Damascus to have been the hub of, of Syrian Arab nationalism uh, around the Treaty of Versailles, uh, uh, having sent a delegation to Versailles, representing all residents of greater Syria. Uh, this connection between Syria and Palestine, uh, even though for these migrants themselves, 
was was these were not mutually exclusive categories. You could be Palestinian and Syrian because you're you form the southern region of Syria. Um, but in direct response to the British authorities, for example, saying you're either Syrian or you're Palestinian, you can't be both. Uh, this as a result of the partition of of of, of Greater Syria into mandates. Um, so you see this flurry of of organiz- of, of groups uh, popping up across the, the diaspora. Their only way of communicating, their only legal, uh, let's say, uh, legitimate and an accepted way of communicating with their distant overlords, being you know the British and French mandate authorities, was through petitions. That was the only uh, way they could make demands and so on. But petitions themselves, I mean, Susan Peterson and Natasha Wheatley uh, have written extensively about the petitioning process during throughout the League of Nations years. Um, Petitioning was a very specific process. I mean, if your petition was to be considered by a consular officer in Mexico City or in Santiago or in um, um, Buenos Aires or, or, or Sao Paulo, you really had to have done your, your research. You knew you had to have found a translator. You had to have received a certain number of signatures. You had to have uh, sort of couched the language in this very respectable rhetoric. You know, you, you can't speak to your... Uh, the, the the high commissioner for Palestine, uh, in uh, you know you can't express yourself freely. You have to show deference and and uh, and respect to this authority. So what you find in the in the petitions is this tension really where the petitioners have to show respect for this ruler. They have to show not just respect but gratitude for having liberated Palestine from the Ottomans and having given them their freedom. But they're also here to tell you, we are uh, we are watching you. We we know that you are uh, contravening international law. You are uh, abusing your power. We demand redress. If you don't, uh, you know, sort of, uh, <clears throat> if you don't afford us and uh, our rights, we will go to the League of Nations. I mean, these these little little threats. These sort of. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, subversive petitions are really the, sort of what's so exciting about these these documents. For them to have made it to Jerusalem and made it to Geneva and made it to London means that, that means two things, means that they were written quite well. It also means that the consular offices in these, these different migrant hubs uh, were moved by what they were hearing. And in fact, it turns out that, that yes, yeah, so in, in some uh, newspapers, newspapers, um, that uh, in some communications between migrant communities across the Americas, they would recommend to each other which consular officer to to go to visit because they uh, were sympathetic with our cause, right? So it wasn't that the entire British, you know, establishment was out to keep these Palestinians uh, from returning. It was that certain, the High Commissioner certainly, and certain uh, members of the British, you know, sort of colonial enterprise had something in mind for Palestine and there was no room for these migrants, even if they had a valid reason to, to petition and protest. Um, so that's why petitions are so are so interesting is that they're really, they're couched in the language of international law. They're completely appropriate documents. They're not revolutionary. They're not saying, get out of our land. They're not saying, give us back, you know, they're part and parcel of the structure uh, structures of League of Nations and which includes the mandates. Uh, and that actually is, in many ways, 
why it was so easy for for the British mandate to, to just simply ignore them, because petitions could easily be dismissed. There was no way, there was no reason for um, British or French authorities to be intimidated by petitions. They were simply a way for these mandated colonized subjects, a way for them to communicate with their with their colonizers. Uh, but read in a certain way, we can see them as uh, modes of group uh, and national development. I mean, the fact that these groups of Palestinians are coming together, collecting signatures, drafting these letters, s- traveling to Mexico City from Monterrey or from Iyapel in 300 kilometers north of Santiago, all the way to Santiago, uh, down you know the slopes of the Andes to deliver these petitions means that something was happening socially amongst these 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 groups of people, these 300 plus people per petition, for them to feel connected and 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 vindicated enough that this is a justice we must pursue and we will do it no matter what. So this had to have repercussions on the community in terms of self-fashioning, self-identification, uh, and so on. And that's that's really how it goes from a history of Syrian migration to a history or Ottoman Syrian Ottoman or an Arab migration to a history of Palestinian diaspora formation uh, uh, in the context of in, of the uh, interwar international law. I was just wondering about something uh, when you were talking about it that um, you know a lot of historians would call this period and probably myself too the Wilsonian moment. But actually, we should probably rename him the, uh, the petition moment, because if I think about uh, the amount of petitions Palestinians and Syrians and Lebanese wrote, uh, for instance, uh, when the King Crane Commission visited the Middle East, it's massive. And they all followed certain rules and uh, language. They were absolutely convinced that this petition might have changed their situation. It didn't. But if anything else, yeah. it told... It tells us about the feelings and about how people saw themselves and understood the international uh, construct of that period in time. Exactly. I have a question about chapter four and chapter five of your book. Um, In this chapter, you're talking about Palestinians, particularly Mexico and Chile. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about these communities and uh, how you know, their experience was similar and different and how they related to each other and obviously to Palestine. Perhaps also you can tell us something more about the famous uh, football club, uh, Club Palestino, Club Palestino, better saying, um, that is based in Chile, given that we are in the uh, um, time and moment of a football World Cup uh, played in Qatar at the moment. I'll do my best to 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 speak to to the Club Deportivo Palestino, but you know, as as a historian, I'm I'm mostly stuck in the past. But um, you know, if 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 we're to compare Mexico and Chile in terms of settlement, I so I, in fact Honduras per capita has the highest number of Palestinian migrants uh, relative, you know, per capita. But uh, Chile today has the largest number of Palestinians outside of the Middle East. Mexico. Uh, has a very large number of Palestinians, but uh, tracing them out of, or sort of weeding them out of, of the larger Lebanese or Syrian migrant communities in Mexico is, is harder. This is mostly because the, 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 the more successful communities 
to have settled Mexico and established themselves as Middle Eastern migrant communities were the Lebanese, uh, much like in Brazil and Argentina, or Argentina as the Syrians. If Lily Balafet's book, uh, Argentina and uh, Argentina in the Global Middle East, I believe is the title, um, is, is, is an excellent example of just how influential Syrian communities from Halab, from Aleppo, from Damascus, and so on, were in, in establishing themselves in, in Argentina. As similar books have been written for, for the Lebanese, certainly, uh, and it's, it's high time uh, similar books are written for the Palestinians. And this is why uh, Chile is a particularly interesting example um, because like in Mexico, the, the Chile receipt, the Palestinian communities in Chile managed to um, to emerge the most sort of uh, influential and powerful economically and politically. Um, why, let's say, why in Chile and why not in Mexico? Well, really, this goes back to settlement patterns. And, and what we see coming, what we see is that, uh, let's say, a, a migrant from Bejala or Bethlehem arrived in Santiago in 1890, established a small shop, went back and forth to Palestine for decades up until, you know, World War I, um, brought back neighbors, brought married, had children, so on. Endogamy was the, the way of doing things. So you went back to your community, you found someone either from your village, your town, or from within your religious sect, and you brought them back with you. This was similar across most of, of the Middle East. So it's happenstance. It's really simply coincidence that, uh, well, there's also topographic uh, similarity between uh, Chile and, and Palestine, uh, and what we talked about earlier, economic uh, comp- wanting to avoid economic competition. So the Lebanese had already settled, let's say, certain parts of Mexico, then the Palestinians will not go there. They will go maybe further north to Monterrey and Saltillo, where markets that haven't been tapped. And subsequently, their relatives will start moving there as well. So then you have these Palestinian-Mexican communities emerging and so on. Um, but of course, in us, in, in terms of discussing these, these migrant and settlement patterns, the only reason we speak about them different, uh, as parsed out internationalities is because of the mandates. This wouldn't have been necessary had you know, a hundred years ago, had these uh, mandates not formed and then forced these 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 demarcations. Um, in terms of Mexico and settlement in Mexico, I would recommend uh, audience to read Teresa Alfaro Velcamp's book, "So Far from God, So Close to to Heaven," uh, and and um, uh, Camila Pastor's Pastor de Maria y Campos book on on on. French, excuse me, Lebanese migrant um, communities in Mexico during the mandate period. I hope I got the titles right. But in any case, these books really delve into these these settlement patterns for these communities, mostly for the Syrians and Lebanese. The Palestinians had similar narratives, of course, in terms of arriving, connecting with other Arabic-speaking migrants, receiving credit lines, peddling goods and and selling them all across the continent. Um, For Palestinians, this occurred in the northern uh, parts of of, of Mexico. Uh, in Chile, this was also a very similar pattern of migration, but of course, Chile is a very vertical country. So what you see uh, for Palestinian uh, communities up outside of Santiago and Valparaiso, the two hubs of uh, Chilean commerce and, and settlement in this early period, is that they form a line from uh, villages in the mid-Andes, such as Iapel and Ovalle, all the way down to Concepcion and Los Angeles, uh, also so sort of between five 
and four and five hundred kilometers on either side of, of Santiago. You also have some Palestinian communities that pop up in the Atacama Desert, which I found out through through the research. Um, they're really all over, but the hubs are those places where either the climate is suitable, it is it is it is safe politically. Uh, there's less competition and and more up uh, more um, opportunities for assimilation economically and culturally in the uh, uh, where they are. Um, the Club Deportivo Palestino was formed in Santiago in 1920 by Palestinian migrants. Um, that's, in fact, as much as I know about, about the team. But today it is one of Chile's most uh, prestigious football uh, clubs. And uh, one of the things that they, they tend to be very proud of is the fact that any number one on a jersey is, is in the shape of historic Palestine. And, of course, this has caused... Uh, a lot of issues, both with the Jewish community in Chile and also with um, uh, with lot, larger football uh, federations. Uh, but the Club Deportivo Palestino, uh, there's also the Club Social Palestino, uh, also in in Santiago. I went there and I attended cultural events there. You enter that space, and it's really a hub for all these uh, descendants of Palestinians to come and. Uh, you know, eat and, and dance and, and swim and have their kids play football and, and run around in gardens and playgrounds and so on. Um, it felt like I was I was at the national, the Orthodox club here in Amman, which has a similar sort of vibe about it. It's, uh, it's certain families from Amman that love to go there in the summers and, and enjoy, uh, you know, each other's company and enjoy a drink and enjoy uh, watching their kids play um, and so on. So these 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 are very much sort of uh, you know mirrored uh, realities across the Atlantic and ac- across these continents. And of course, there are similar Lebanese clubs, Syrian clubs. Um, in fact, in the twenties, there was a Homsi club and a Halabi club that emerged in Santiago. Uh, again, at the time, this wasn't about necessarily patriotism and nationalism. Halabi versus Homsi, no, is is the fact that if you are from Halab, here's a club you could join to incentivize you to, let's say, send money. This was a big reason. Remittances were, were huge. We're a huge mainstay of Middle Eastern economies at, in this time. So remittances from migrants making it big in the Americas. If you're just going to send money to Syria, how do you know it's going to go to Homs? How do you know it's going to go to Jerusalem? How do you know it's going to go to Bejala? So these groups would pop up to represent these, these different um, uh, you know, sort of uh, places back home. Um, so that's what I found to be interesting about uh, settlement patterns and uh, how they remained connected to Palestine, promoting uh, Palestinian issues and so on. Uh, one other thing I found really interesting was the 1927, I believe, earthquake in Palestine. Was it 1927? This this rallied Palestinians in the diaspora significantly. Uh, the newspapers were just uh, going crazy with this news. We have to send money. We have to send money. And here's this organization sending this amount. And here's this other one sending this amount. It was all going to Palestine. It was all going to different um, communities in Palestine. But the, the number of groups that popped up in the diaspora you know, send money to Bethlehem, send money to Bejala, here's one to Ramallah, here's one to Nablus, here's one, you know, was was uh, is very interesting. I have a couple more questions, and one is very much about uh, so what the, the, the last chapters of the book, and um, 
I want to pick up on what you talked about earlier about uh, periodical journals and magazines, uh, which are you know very important materials for us historians, but also you know for people to spread information and obviously to uh, uh, sort of create their own opinions and shape their views of the world around them. You talk about this fascinating relationship of these magazines and periodicals produced in Latin America and their relationship with Palestine, the famous uh, newspaper published in, in Palestine. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this relationship and how uh, Palestine essentially picked up information about uh, you know, these communities abroad and talked about them in Palestine and vice versa, how Palestine essentially produced material that was then picked up by communities abroad and uh, this information was spread uh, throughout Latin America. Certainly. Well, uh, it's a, as you mentioned, it's a bi-directional um, phenomenon. So on the one hand, uh, well, Philistine was one of the most prominent publications coming out of Palestine at the time. And they were the ones who, and its its editors were the ones that had the most international reach, let's say. So periodicals across the Americas, also in North America as well, were receiving a lot of the news um, from Philistine. So, you know, this is very common in across uh, diaspora presses is, is to republish pieces that are, that are relevant pieces that appeared in in publications back home, uh, so Philistine was was the the major one for many uh, publications in Chile, at least um, the the magazine, the periodicals that I examined. Um, so you'd see a lot of republications of pieces that emerged or uh, that were first emerged in in Philistine, and they would they would mention that certainly at the top of each article. You know, this is this is uh, a reprint of a piece that appeared on this date in Philistine. Um, that was common, and it had sort of logical reasons uh, to keep readers in Chile and Latin America you know, up to date on what's happening in, in the homeland. Now, um, of course, politically, these newspapers were also very much aligned. There was they were nationalistic. They were all about you know liberating or not liberating it, but at least giving Palestinians their self determination, um, and they were secular, uh, very importantly, which Palestine was as well. Um, What's interesting about why Philistine newspaper would choose to republish certain pieces from from diaspora presses uh, was was very political and deliberate. And as we know, Philistine uh, was very critical of 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 the uh, f- the famous nationalist parties and the sort of tribal affiliations of of Palestinian nationalists in the in the twenties and thirties. Let's say the Husseinis and the Shashibis and these sort of bigger families, and how uh, important it was to move past these old regime politics in order to withstand Zionist and British um, oppression and um, sort of the, the the quashing of the of the Palestinian nationalist movement. So, if Philistine newspaper wants to publish a piece to critique Palestinian leadership, which they did all the time. Uh, what better way or what better way to build an argument against or the need, uh, build an argument for the need to reform uh, the nationalist movement in Palestine? Uh, why not publish pieces that are from Palestinians in Santiago and Mexico and so on, uh, calling for the same thing uh, to sort of pressure 
and to push this this movement forward. So we see this often in in Palestinian newspaper in the twenties, uh, saying, you know, here's a migrant from Salvador who cannot come back because of the British law, but he's writing this piece and we're republishing it because he wants you to know that while he's devastated that he can't come back because of the British citizenship law, he's more devastated about the state of the nationalist movement in Palestine. Um, you know, this certainly a little sensationalist, but, um, but really interesting that, that Philistine newspaper that had the very specific agenda um, was finding sort of food or fodder for its, for its mission all the way in Santiago and, and Monterrey and elsewhere in the Americas uh, to pressure nationalist leaders in Palestine to reform, to, um, to do away with old regime politics. Um, so I think it was, it was mutually beneficial for these different publishers, or excuse me, these different periodicals. Uh, of course, they were selective in what they would print and reprint. Um, interestingly, also, uh, something that Philistine did often was reprint the names of, of those who donated or sent remittances uh, in order, of course, you know, Palestine is, uh, Palestinian communities are quite small at the time. Um, so for, for each side, let's say, you know, for Palestinians in Palestine and Palestinians in, in Chile to know that, uh, you know, they are being named, they are, their contributions to the earthquake relief fund or to the nationalist movement or to this organization or that is being recognized in this important piece. So it's very important for them to name one another, um, which also goes to show just how sort of small these networks were uh, and how important endogamy was to these communities. Khalas, you're from this this family, you, you know this family, you're from this village, you're from this village. We honor you and, and um, you know, we recognize your, your sacrifice and your contribution and so on. So, I mean, newspapers were very much a way for them to build these transnational networks and, uh, and strengthen um, camaraderie. Lastly, what happened to uh, Palestinians in the diaspora? All of us? <laughs> oh, that would be uh, another book, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So what's interesting in, is really depends where, where you look for them. You know, um, Chile, it's, it's funny that Chile continues to be the place where you turn to, to to talk about Palestinian diaspora in the Americas because it does have such a large number of Palestinians. But that's not the only reason, I think. Um, I can't say much of what happened to Palestinians outside of Chile in terms of historically, their historical trajectory over the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, because many of their narratives, as I mentioned earlier, have been sort of uh, muddled or subsumed in, in just Turco, tu, they're, khalas, they're, they're Turcos or they're all Sirios or they're, they're from the Middle East. Um, and many, and I'm meeting Palestinians in Chile, many of them would tell me that for them, remembering where they were from and maintaining and being deliberate and explicit about which town or which village they were from is very important for them, unlike their counterparts in different parts of the Americas who, who don't know what village or town they're from. So there was something about Chile, about the community in, in Chile that kept them very attached to their specific roots, whether they're from this village or that, this family or that, what, you know, 
So being in Chile specifically, not unlike Mexico, um, felt very much like being in Palestine. It's it's, it's true, uh, and I I think this is this has a lot to do with with the history of Palestine of the 20th century and what was happening. So, so if we have a, a community of a, a community in the Americas in Santiago that has a large number of of, of Palestinians. And if this community is continually, let's say, engaged in, in remaining connected to what's happening in Palestine, then certainly uh, this community over the course of the 20th century and all the very dramatic events that happened uh, in Palestine is going to continue to remain strongly attached to its Palestinian identity versus other contexts where, let's say, education levels were not as high, where uh, Palest- levels numbers of Palestinians were dwindling rather than increasing as they were in uh in in chile the other thing is that after 48 and 67 there were large numbers of palestinians who also went to chile chile was generally very welcoming of of palestinian refugees um so this constant flow of palestinians and their constant growth within chile um really has a lot to do with with why today uh when you go to Chile and you you spend time with Palestinians there, you feel very much that this is Palestine or this is a very viable, strong Palestinian community outside or in exile. Uh, the other reason is that for the most part, they are quite successful and quite affluent and uh, they have managed to, uh, to, to be part of, let's say, sort of every, up, any upper echelon of, of society, whether political or economic or, uh, or cultural. So there are very loud and proud Palestinian cultural events in, being held in Santiago. There are members of parliament that, that are proudly identify as Palestinian. Uh, the president today, the new president, is is, a, is not of Palestinian descent, but is outspoken about uh, support for the Palestinian cause. Uh, these things wouldn't be possible in other regions uh, or other parts of the region uh, where, let's say, the Palestinians were a mon- minority or uh, were less politically, economically active. The other reality about Chile is that Chile is home to a lot of different political and cultural and um, uh, ideological possibilities. Uh, you know, um, it's a very diverse society politically, and we see with the recent referendum how how close it was to really overturning the the, the tide in in Chile, moving. Uh, moving to uh, to leftism, but um, alas, the idea is that Palestinians in Chile have always had a stake in what happens in Chile. They've never not been part of the, the national fabric of Chile, which has allowed them to be proud Palestinos chilenos uh, rather than just chilenos, which you find in many other parts of the Americas. This was uh, Nadim Bawasa, author of Transnational Palestine, Migration and the Right of Return Before 1948, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Nadim, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.